podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, John. Thanks. It is a really nice spring day here. Uh, it's a Sunday afternoon, so it's kind of that uh, lazy part of the day before I actually have to race around and do chores and cook before my wife comes home from work. So I couldn't be in a better position to chill and talk about movies. I hear you. My morning chores are done for the most part. Uh, family's out for a bit. And uh, yeah, it's it's actually pretty nice out here too. I'm wearing shorts, but that's mostly just to let the recent tattoo heal. So um, I'm absolutely in a good uh, mental place to, uh, to, to chat about movies uh, as well. Today's uh, today's episode is about a little-known indie filmmaker, someone you may or may not have heard of by the name of Martin Scorsese. I personally am not even really 100% sure of how to intro this episode because he is the one of the most highly regarded filmmakers of all time, which is a fact that anyone listening to this podcast knows and shouldn't be of any surprise. Um, in fact, part I, I think part of... What I like about the prospect of this episode is that it's we're talking about a couple of movies that are not necessarily among like the first that come to mind when you think of Scorsese, um, but it's like the stuff that he likes to talk about is is I think pretty prevalent and obvious in both of these movies. Um, do you have any sort of like? thoughts specifically around these pairing of movies before uh before we sort of launch into it yeah so i i I think and this was my pick for the month um Mm -hmm. partly because um it allows me to fill in a blind spot that i had with scorsese's filmography i i still have not seen all of his work um but i am like that with like my favorite all-time directors. I, I, I'm not that devourer of everything that they do. Once I get to a certain threshold, I like to parse them out and take them as I need them. Um, I do those with my books too. So first off, this pairing kind of harkened back to the original intent of Cinema Duel, where I had seen one of these films and you had seen the other one of these films. So we were introducing each other to a new film. Um, and I think directly to your point, um, Scorsese is without a doubt one of our finest living directors, I would say, from an American cinema perspective. He might be the greatest living American director right now. Um, And throughout his entire filmography, he has had many obsessions, uh, which are readily apparent regardless of the genre. Um, This is a person who is deeply um, affected and influenced by his his faith, his spirituality, his Roman Catholic upbringing, uh, guilt and sin. And um, when he puts those into his films, he does it in a lot of different ways, some more subtle than others. So I thought it'd be interesting, rather than just do a straight Scorsese episode, let's look at... um, two instances where he much more directly tackles some of those obsessions. So we're going to kind of subtitle this episode Religious Scorsese, although one could argue all of his films have a kind of a religious or at least a spiritual wrangling uh, tint to them. These ones very specifically deal with that. Um, how's that? That was <laughs> that was pretty good uh, and pretty much summarizes uh all of my sort of thoughts uh, going into it. I don't necessarily have a lot more to add to to that uh, before we get into each of these movies on their own. Uh, so without 
further ado, why don't we just get to it? Let's talk about Kundun. So obviously we are skipping over uh, 1988's Last Temptation of Christ. I think uh, a lot of people have spoken about that movie uh, in depth. That's a fairly popular film, but we will talk about it a little bit later. I wanted to start our journey with 1997's Kundun, which I think is one of the more little-seen Scorsese films, um, at least around a lot of movie fans. The pedigree of this film uh, is incredible. You have, obviously, Scorsese directing, but this is written by Melissa Matheson, uh, who probably most famously also wrote E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It is cinematography by Roger Deakins, um, edited, obviously, by Thelma Shoemaker, um, but music by Philip Glass. Uh, so when you put those kind of components together, um, in theory, this kind of seems like a, a slam dunk. This is a basically a biopic um, about the 14th Dalai Lama, starting from when he is approximately two years old um, and uh, is um, being kind of discovered for the first time uh, a couple of years after the passing of the 13th Dalai Lama, um, all the way up until 1959, which marks the occasion of his exile into India. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. Um, it is filmed almost entirely uh, with um, non-actors, um, actual monks, uh, and a number of children. It is gorgeous to look at. This is one of those things where if you've got Scorsese kind of still in the his... I don't want to say his prime, but he's kind of at the apex of his powers here in the late 90s. Um, and you got Roger Deakins. You know that this is going to be a wash in color um, and making use of natural lighting and making use of incredible filters. Um, it actually is interesting from a color scheme perspective, almost totally the opposite of what we're going to talk about next for our other film, uh, which is one of the things that I thought about this. Um, but I'll be honest, I also thought that as gorgeous as this movie is, and this is a movie, obviously, about watching the Dalai Lama kind of come of age and go from a precocious two-year-old child to a young leader of an entire um, faith being forced um, to abandon his people and abandon his home uh, under the threat of the... Um, communist Chinese regime. Uh, this is a man who is constantly struggling against kind of what to do, uh, what to do as uh, what to do as the leader of a people, both from a religious perspective, but also from a humanity perspective. Um, something very similar to what we'll be talking about in our next film. Um, so everything is there. Uh, the wrestling with with the guilt of having to make these choices, the wrestling with understanding kind of um, what our faith and, 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 and what we're being asked to do um, in, in any given set of circumstances. And yet, I find ultimately, uh, this is a fine film, it's a beautiful film, but ultimately I'm left a little wanting, I think, because, and this is what I wanted to ask you, John, to kind of kick off the discussion for the film. I think the biggest problem with Kundun is that you never really know the Dalai Lama. It's, it is such a hard thing to know. I mean, he is a kind of an inscrutable enigma. He, he is his teachings, which I think is what the Dalai Lama is supposed to be. 
But what I love about Scorsese is when he wrestles with all of these themes and all of these these notions of guilt and faith and spirituality, uh, he does it in a way that you you know the person. You are completely put into this person's world um, so that you can feel the wrestling. You can feel the pain and the anguish of things that are being made. And while that's displayed on the screen here, um, I never really quite felt it. Um, so it's an interesting movie. I, I don't want to say that it's a failure by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the first time watching a Scorsese film where I was kind of like, I watched everything, I've seen everything, um, and now I'm done. I get it. But I never got involved like I would typically with a film. So my question to you to kind of kick off your discussion is like, did you know, did you feel like you knew the Dalai Lama after this? Uh, he's the character that we kind of carry through throughout the thing. How did you, by the time of the pictures end, how did you feel about him? Um, I, I think I mostly uh, agree with you in that sense. And especially compared to sort of the other two movies in this 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 sort of unofficial triptych that we're referring to here uh the 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 dalai lama in this case is the one sort of central character where i feel like we don't really that feel whose i guess inner life does feel sort of opaque um in a way that the other two uh are are less uh are less so where you can fully see scorsese like bringing you their interiority um there's there's brief there's brief moments where you get to see sort of glimpses of uh, the, the the person himself and what he would prefer to do other than being a religious leader, especially as a child. Um, but for the most part, the, 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 the conflict is stated. I think you're, I like the way you said it was felt because it, it's it's stated and it's shown, um, especially uh, towards the end when sort of the the scale of the the movie increases when you bring you start to bring in the um, the armies and you get to see sort of the larger impact of what it's happening, um, but uh, but yeah, sort of that 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 feeling of am I connecting to this person as a person or is it. Um, Something like I think I saw some comparisons to like the the sense of reverence almost acts as a deterrent or as a barrier for Scorsese, where he's just this person is so cool, um, and that prevents him from like getting into sort of the 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 mindset of what this or of, of trying to portray this uh the 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 struggle that might be going on um in a way that he doesn't in his other movies i don't know does that do you, do you think that sort of veneration aspect track for for this film i don't know because this is one of the other things that i was gonna kind of talk through when it comes to kundun this wasn't a film or a project that scorsese chased uh, this was right for my, my understanding. I had watched a bunch of uh, I read a bunch about it, um, read a uh, watched a couple of the documentaries and interviews that came on my edition of, of the film. I have the and I will give a quick shout out. We always talk about Criterion and their special editions. Um, but Kundun is a special edition from Kino Lober, um, Lober. And it is it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just a Blu-ray, but it's presented 
like a visual feast. It has a full disc with like hours and hours of documentaries and interviews with the cast, uh, not with the cast, with the creators of, of the film. So this was something that Melissa Matheson um, had met the Dalai Lama and had wanted to do something about his life and had done some extensive interviews with the Dalai Lama, who was gracious with his time. And then she brought that to Scorsese and said, hey, I, I think you would like to do this. Um, and that's how he kind of came into this. I would love to have seen... And again, we're, I, I know we will constantly kind of touch base back to Last Temptation of Christ, but I would have loved to have seen this as a collaboration with him and like Paul Schrader, which is not a knock on Melissa Matheson as a writer, but uh, this screenplay has nothing to draw me in. Um, so thank God that all of Scorsese's tricks are on display here as a filmmaking master. There are stunning shots of... Um, one of the most uh, breathtaking shots that I recall is, um, well, there are two, but uh, as they start to build the sand art and how close up Deacons gets to the sand art where you can see everything being made in all the detail. And then when the the line starts to kind of push through is, is as China is pushing through Tibet, you know, to impose their will. Something else that I want to talk about in relation to our other film. It's, it's striking. There's a striking parallel here of... Uh, Mao Zedong and China coming to Tibet and saying, you guys are in need of enlightenment. You guys are in need of um, evolution. Uh, we are here to give you that. Uh, and the way that we will give you that is we will push all of our people in and we will blare music and stop you from doing your ceremonies and basically take over by might. Uh, and I, I love the way that Scorsese kind of illustrates that push um, so close up using the, the sand. There's also a, a beautiful moment at the end where um, the Dalai Lama arrives at the checkpoint to India um, and he looks at his his kind of um, coterie of, of guards and advisors who carried him this far. And he they wave goodbye to him and it pulls into him and then pulls back to them uh, and they're all dead. They're just in the same exact spot, but there is blood everywhere and they're lying dead on their horses as he's kind of foreseeing what this goodbye wave is going to mean to them. It, it is, it's a visual feast. Um, Scorsese just kicks it all over the map with these little flourishes. Earlier in the picture with the young boy um, seeing everything through the red gauze of the monk's robes. I, I love that moment. I love how Deacon shoots it. Um, it's so, it is just one of those things where it is such a visual feast. I wish that there had been something more to cling to as I was dazzled by the actual movie making of the film. Well, and uh, this is probably where I just want to really shout out uh, Philip Glass's soundtrack oh, man. because, yes. <laughs> oh, to me, that like, I mean, <laughs> this is not a slide on Roger Deakins. Obviously, the man knows what he's doing. Um, but for me, what really sort of kept me in as much as I did was uh, the soundtrack. the The Philip Glass score was. I would I don't know who's doing reissues of the of the Kundun soundtrack but I would fucking buy that in a heartbeat yeah <laughs> Philip Glass is no one to mess around with uh, it's a it's a gorgeous uh, keyboard heavy score um, in some ways very reminiscent of the stuff that did with um, Kriyanas Kwatsi and, and 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 that trilogy of, of films it's it's gorgeous, but and this may wind up being kind of a shorter episode because really, again, I, I, I don't feel the meat on the bones here that I would feel on another even like larger failure, uh, like, say, for example, 
the Irishman, which which may not be an abject failure, um, but it it certainly I would say would maybe be kind of lesser Scorsese if we're looking at his I mean just slew of masterpieces. Um, but there's a lot there to chew on in terms of character and motivation, and there's nothing here like that when you're dealing with more of a quick you know, takes place over 20 years, episodic, almost by the bones biopic of somebody. Um, and I kind of regret that, even though it's just stunning to look at. For for me, and you might need to, if this comparison doesn't work, I'm going to cut it out of the podcast. But uh, um, for me, where I feel like I can find a comparison point outside of Last Temptation, um, is before like so when we talk about like religious movies there is in the last say like 20 years or so there's absolutely been a sort of separate fun like, conservative christian industry of movies your god's not deads your courageous is your fireproofs those are all terrible but when i was younger when i was younger than that when i was a kid in the 90s there was this film it was called the jesus film and this was basically a filmed version of the gospel story and this was like so you get your miracles you get your you get the whole thing but the whole point of this uh was to um it was it was produced by sort of you know some religious organization but it the idea was was to take this like just let's just do the basics it, i think it might even just be we, we could call it jesus film but i think it's just called jesus is the official title and it would and the idea was to get this into as many countries in the world, like you, you, you want to spread the gospel. You want to print the legend of like, hey, here's the basics. You want, you don't necessarily want a lot of hoopla about it. Here is like the essentials, right? And obviously, it's not directed by Martin Scorsese, uh, written by Melissa Matheson, music by Philip Glass, any of the uh, shot by Roger Deakins. Obviously, it's none of those things. But it is just like, nope. Here is the story, like. You, if you need to know, if you need the basics, here are the basics. And well, obviously, this is a considerably better movie because it has made by a lot more talented filmmakers. I think where I land on this is this, and again, I think it probably comes back to those sort of interviews with Matheson and the Dalai Lama that sort of is the foundation for this project. It this feels like a well-made, like very well-made. Uh, you know, version of print the legend. When the last episode we talked about spider, it actually feels like sort of that where it's like, nope, this is, I guess, superficial. It might not sure. be the word, but but compared to some of their other work, it's like, no, 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 you you pretty much get it in one go. Yeah, I I would agree. Um, I think to kind of bring it back to to your and I was not aware of this your weird Jesus movie. <laughs> Uh, there is an intent behind the Weird Jesus movie, I'm going to assume, where it's kind of preaching the Gospels and kind of preaching some of the the teachings and the practices that one should do as a good Christian. Um, I don't see a, really even a lot of that here. This certainly isn't a movie that is advocating or championing Buddhism. Um, it's not really... It, it, it doesn't... It, maybe it is... I would have no problem going to watch this again, um, even though I don't really have a great need to. But um, 
it's lacking like an anchor for me. Like I, I, I get it is about the discovery and then his exile and that's bad. And we understand that that's bad. And, and, you know, that there is a feeling for the plight there. Um, uh, the the film ends on a couple of words um, that kind of wash away in the water. There are these beautiful kind of sort of Buddhist, Taoist kind of things with like words appear on the floating water and then disappear again and things like that. And and at the end, there are some words that says that the Dalai Lama hopes one day to return to his country. Um, and that's the only thing that I kind of got from this movie was here was a guy who really didn't want to leave his home, didn't want to leave his people, um, but had to. And at the end, he looks longingly back at it as he sees, you know, weird clouds coming overhead. You could argue those are the clouds of communism or the clouds of the Chinese overrunning Tibet. You could just argue it's clouds and it's more of a wistful longing to return home. Um, but that's not enough for me for a film like this. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think we are kind of on the same page for an over two-hour film, too, by the way. It certainly didn't feel like two hours, but I would expect for a meaty length of time to have gotten a little bit more of a meal out of it than I guess I did. I wanted, especially when reading up on this movie and how Disney, immediately after reading it, just absolutely, like, threw it into a ditch and, like, like shotgunned it to death uh, like being like oh this was a terrible mistake we should have never made this movie and just sort of the 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 way that this film exists or the the this, um after it was made and it's buried and you know not not widely seen afterwards i really wanted for this to be like a secret masterpiece of like oh check out this movie that no like is hardly remembered because of weird political stuff but then i watched it and i was like it sucks that that happened but also it, and it was and if people don't remember it it might not be for the right reasons but that doesn't make it like i don't know if this is one where we're like hey guys we were wrong about this we should go back and and check it out <laughs> i'll say this there is it, at least in my experience there is no scorsese film that should not be seen <laughs> yeah you know? like uh, yeah again there is a like <laughs> if someone else had uh if, if someone else had made a movie that was this, then you'd be like, yeah, that was really good. I would good, good on them for doing it. It's just because it's Scorsese making it where you're like, you, it, it does, you know that he's capable of giving you more, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and I don't want to put that on. Like I would have liked this more if it was from another director, it would have been enough. It, it the movie is the movie. Right. And it just, it's, Look, sometimes you swing and hit a home run. Sometimes you have a, you know, you have a really earnest single. (laughs) This is a, I I am not a sports person, but I, that's kind of the analogy that kind of popped into mind. Um, I wonder, um, John, uh, because I'm going to assume we can put this one to bed. uh, To your point, I, I wonder what kind of sports metaphor you will give our next film, which is your pick, 2016's Silence. been referenced at various points at various things even including in this episode where i mentioned the weird jesus movie that like i come from a very religious background and uh in the last few years where i'm at in that in regards to that stuff is very weird and complicated right now and this is a movie about a person who like kundun 
like Jesus in the Last Temptation of Christ, has an absolute crisis of faith. And the silence in this case is the silence of God, of God not responding to the pain and suffering that he's going through, but also the pain and suffering that is being inflicted on others on his behalf. And we can get into sort of like the specifics of what that plot is. But my first viewing of this movie left me in tears. Straight up. I was like, it hit me at a particularly vulnerable moment uh, to the point that I actually haven't revisited it until we came time to talk about this podcast. And so a lot of my thoughts are going to be around sort of the the faith aspect of it, but also sort of like how my second viewing has sort of shifted as I have shifted as well. That's where the juice of this this movie really lies. And I feel like unlike in 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 Kundun where we there we sort of see these characters at a at a distance at a remove, I feel like this movie does for me at least get you better into that interior life where you are better able to see the struggle. And then we can talk about, you know, the the cinematography and the and the violence that you that you see in this movie it's like there's a lot of i think there's a lot of stuff to talk about here i guess to start with like chris this was your first time watching it it was i mean obviously you came in with the knowledge of the two prior scorsese religious movies coming into it so like how did this stuff land for you so yeah i had the knowledge of not only the two prior movies but i mean with almost all of Scorsese's filmography. So I know the themes that he wrestles with in all of his films. Um, and this was just a blind spot. I had just been, just hadn't had the opportunity uh, to sit down and see it. It's always, there's another thing, another this, another that. Um, uh, so uh, I definitely agree with you. There is the the one thing that I, uh, there are a few things Um I'll I'll say simply, it's the same for me as Kundun in that this to me is while it is a much more emotional work and a much more lived-in work, where to your point, you definitely understand the interior of these characters. A hundred percent, you do. Um, for me, it still felt. It, it still feels lesser Scorsese for me. It feels old man Scorsese. It's a little slower. It's a little bit more meditative. Um, it wears itself kind of on its sleeve a little too much for my taste. Um, I think the performances overall are fantastic. I love the, again, when we talk about Kundun, so much of Kundun was bathed in these reds and these golds and these yellows of kind of where they were living in Tibet. This is a largely, um, it's a largely blue film. It's, there's a lot of, a lot of blues, a lot of just, just very striking um, muted tones until you get to certain sections where uh, the priests are held in jail and, and now you see your, your, your reds and your, and your fire kind of, signifying certain things as well. Um, but what I come back to is something similar to Kundun, similar to Last Temptation, similar to some of the music that we've been talking to. Um, uh, for me, I, I tend to specifically with movies, um, except for when I don't, which is the way it is for everything. A movie for me is never what it is about. It is how it is about it. Uh, and from a um, like a music perspective too, we were talking about a particular metal band, which I won't name, but they are uh, over the moon uh, with with hype and praise for their leftist ideologies, which is great. Hey, that's a great thing. But the music is terrible. <laughs> the music is terrible, and it is 
overproduced and just blasted out loud and it's not original and I just don't care. It doesn't matter how good your message is. To a much lesser extent with silence, what I when I look at silence, I look and just see, man, Martin Scorsese really, really just wants to hammer in his his struggle with his faith and kind of point home with the ending that, um, you know, though you may um, overtly kind of disavow, uh, you know, your beliefs and, and you have all this inner conflict within on those things that you do at the end, as long as you kind of keep it true to your heart, that's what matters. And that is such a, for me, uh, simplistic message that is so hit on the nose in this film that it kind of wipes away some of the enjoyment for me. I would much rather see that same exact thing worked out with gangsters or with an old boxer uh, or with some of the, the less direct religious films that Scorsese has directed. Um, so that's kind of where I land. It's, again, a gorgeous picture. Um, uh, we have some photography by Rodrigo Prieto, I hope I said that right. Uh, the score, I'm not familiar with. Uh, Kim Allen Kluge and Catherine Kluge, I don't know who they are, but the score did not stand out for me at all. Really, this was... The, the, the standouts here are the performances. And Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, uh, who I thought was going to be in the film more. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, a... this is. I don't know if anyone else is going to compare this movie to Executive Decision, but this definitely feels like Steven Seagal and Executive Decision, where you're like, oh, this is going to be Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal teaming up, and then all of a sudden, he's gone. You're like, That's what? kind of the Liam Neeson thing, too. And I get how they position Liam Neeson. I do like that. I love that... To me, where the story has the gravitas for me is here um, is this young kind of um, raring to go priest who is lived by the teachings of his mentor who is now missing. And when they finally reunite and and that relationship has to change, that to me is the meat of the story. That to me is what I enjoyed. I enjoyed seeing the crush of seeing... And we can argue if we want to argue kind of plot like is Liam Neeson is Liam Neeson still holding true to his Christian tenets like kind of Andrew Garfield does toward the end or does he truly believe what he's saying? Um, because there's a whole thing there we can talk about where I had a couple of problems um, trying to kind of work through what was being said here. Um, you, you had mentioned this on uh, earlier where there's so many things to tackle. And when you present this whole case of, of what's going on, which is essentially in a weird kind of different view from Kundun, hey, here's a bunch of Christians that are going into this other country uh, where Christianity was not kind of being built or wanted, and they are converting people. And there is a very, very weak and tepid argument made at the end to say, who are we to even be doing this? You know, we think that we've made all this progress, but we haven't. Um, I think that would have been an interesting thing to cover since it is brought up, but it's brought up in like the weakest of terms because Scorsese doesn't, he's not interested in that at all. He's just interested in burrowing to, through to his, his kind of dilemma that he wants to tackle. Um, and I, but I, I feel like it gives that a little bit of short shrift. So that was kind of, in a nutshell, I, I put this right with, with Kundun. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. Um, it was 
beautiful to see. Um, we, we talked about his use of special effects are just amazing. Uh, there is, like, on opposite ends of the spectrum in silence, there is a gorgeous overhead shot of the boat traveling across the ocean, which has to be some of the most seamless, beautiful CGI I've ever seen deployed in a film. Because there ain't no way that's a real ship going across the ocean. <laughs> and on the other <laughs> side of the coin, uh, on the other side of the coin, there's a wonderful moment where Andrew Garfield is looking at his face in the water, and all of a sudden, the reflection of Jesus comes to him. Um, and it's it's a mishmash of the reflection of Jesus and the reflection of the person who sent him on a assignment played by, I'm going to screw up the name, Kieran Hines. Did I say that right? Uh, close enough. Um, it's so old school and old fashioned, uh, but it's so effective and it works so beautifully. This is a man who, even at this stage of his career, um, he knows how to wield the camera. He knows how to shoot a scene. Uh, you know, so how it goes about it um, from a visual perspective is great. Um, but how? It, but it, I'm still left somewhat engaged, disengaged by um, the ultimate crises of faith as they're presented in the film. That was a lot. Yeah. I apologize. No, no, that's good. That's good. Um, I I think that now having watched Last Temptation of Christ, which I mean, I had, like there's there's no point in arguing. It is the superior movie of these three, like without a doubt. Um, I think that the on the on the very basic level, the silence of God angle as it relates to Andrew Garfield, um, the point that drove me. The point that pushed me over the edge when I first watched it was the moment where, uh, where when he's about to step on the icon and Jesus talks to him and says it's okay. That is the point that broke me. The part afterwards where it's like they're secretly Christians while not really being Christians, I was not paying attention at that point. Um, <laughs> the well, to be fair, the rest of the movie, I think you bring up a great point. That is the scene of the movie. Yeah, And that is the most gorgeously filmed scene of the movie. They do that weird, the camera kind of changes direction as he kind of put, he puts his foot down. It becomes like a ballet at that point. It is this horrific, gorgeous, which is why, like I said, like the one thing that this film does great versus Kundun is, man, you understand Andrew Garfield completely. You really do. And you understand what that moment is means for him uh and i get and, and like scorsese knows that too which is why he films that so beautifully and so different and then the rest of the movie is just kind of a wash to me at that point and to your point the movie ends for me at that moment right well and, and i so <clears throat> to answer the liam neeson neeson question uh there is that one moment where he talks he casually in conversations mentions our lord and then andrew garfield just sort of like you just said our Lord and Neil Meeson says, I doubt it. And then leaves. How hilarious though is, did, did he actually say, I doubt it? Because I mean, that's, that's littered with so many meanings. If that's what he said, that, that is actually what he says. He says, uh, I, I, I doubt it. And then he walks away. Um, but, and then of course, like the, the last sort of epilogue of the movie sort of tracks the rest of his life. And then you see in that final shot that he's still carrying the cross and that he's been Christian this whole time. And I think that the larger question of, what business does Christianity have doing in Japan? It, that part feels messy, but in, in in a way that is both like, yeah, he's not really able to crack it, but also I, I, I'm able to see that this time. 
and so like it's it's I'm I'm seeing that this time in a way I didn't last time. But also I personally tie that struggle not so much to Martin Scorsese, who is very much a uh, a white American dude uh, <clears throat> talking about Christianity in Japan. I actually tie it back to the um, the original novel, um, which is on its way from the library. And I'm going to read it at some point. But like the whole point about Japan being a swamp and n- Christianity cannot grow there would seem possibly really paternalistic and gross, except that the the original story is written by uh, a guy named Shusaku Endo, who wrote about being Catholic in Japan and how like it could not find anyone to talk to about it. Um, and I remember reading up on the book and seeing that like a lot of the reader base for that book was actually like <laughs> uh, young leftist college students in Japan who are like, we can't get people to care about communism. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which I like, again, that doesn't necessarily mean excuse the, it, it doesn't sort of like solve that. But for me, that's this, this is where I tie it with Kundun, Kundun as well, is that the, uh, while he is much more dialed in, I think to this movie than the last one, cause he was working on this, like pretty much almost since doing last temptation of Christ. Right. He's yeah. He's been doing this for a long time, but the, like the fire and the, the source for this project does actually come from someone else. In this case, it's the original novel that clearly spoke to him, but there's some of the larger thematics <sighs> is a bit trickier to unpack. And I don't think he's quite as successful. Whereas obviously last temptation of Christ, he, you know, grand slam, wins the world series this is my sports metaphor uh you know and everything comes winding down um but but from a but only like from the very like we're tracking the life of andrew garfield when when that moment hits it's like it's fucking fireworks Hey everyone, John here, breaking in during the editing of this episode after the fact. Uh, since we recorded this episode, I actually did read the novel by Shisako Endo, and it seems like the ending, after Garfield apostatizes, along with the rest of the movie, is actually fairly faithful to the novel, um, with the main changes at the end mostly coming out of challenges of trying to adapt the way the book ends, which is very similar, but just doesn't work for a movie. Um However, the thing that I noted is that the book is much more clear about how Garfield's priest uh, specifically compares his own position to Judas, and Scorsese highlights this in the book's intro as being what drew him to the book itself. Now, this makes much more sense of how Scorsese sees this book, because it's very similar to how he portrays Judas in The Last Temptation of Christ as the beloved betrayer, someone who has to betray Jesus, but like that is very specifically what his role is meant to be, so he doesn't fall outside of grace. He's still very much part of the the big plan. Um, However, I showed this to Chris, and both him and I agree that this specific aspect of the book that drew Scorsese in to make the movie doesn't actually translate to the final film. Anyways, back to the episode. It is. You, you you can tell his heart was, not to say that his heart's not in all of his movies, but like you can tell that he is arrested by this material and, and wants to kind of bring it um, to a level that, 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 that speaks from his heart. Um, I, I just wish I connected more to it. Again, it's, it's, uh, 
almost two hours and 45 minutes long. Um, and so much of that is, is, is in play of just like getting set up to that end point with Liam Neeson. Uh, and it just, it, it, it dragged a little bit for me to be honest, cause I didn't have, uh, coming from an entirely, I don't want to say dissimilar background from you. I, I, I did grow up Roman Catholic and Christian, but again, I wasn't looking for this film to engage me in any type of religious de debate. I was looking to kind of just get to a, get to an understanding of Scorsese and these, these characters. And I got there and it was just to your point though, it gets, there are sections where it just gets so messy. Uh, after he puts his foot down on the idol, the rest of that is, excuse me, the rest of that is just a, uh, it's just a, a slog of just watching them go through the motion so you can get to that weird ending of him being buried with the cross in his hands uh, in the jug. And, and yes, he was Christian this whole time and, and, there maybe there's a message there of, you know, there are rules and there are all this stuff, but ultimately, you know, it's what you carry in your heart that 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 matters. And he he carried that that faith in Christ in his heart the whole time. Um, but you know, when you have to deal with that the messiness of the Liam Neeson sequences, the missing of Adam Driver, who I was really like the movie sets you up to kind of have this dichotomy between the two of them. Um, and the way that they handle that conflict is just to make Adam Driver go away for 45 minutes and then come back and die <laughs> within like two minutes. Uh, and then when he comes back and dies, I get like the parallel Scorsese is drawing from like he took the path that you are supposed to take fighting to take this entire time. You know, and look at where it got him, and look at where it got the these these others. He needs to see that so that he can have that conversation with God when his foot's about to step on it, and get that kind of not absolving, but like you know, step on me, right? Step on me. I, I am made to. I'm made to suffer. You know, that's why I came. I can take this. You know, relieve yourself of that burden. Save who you can, and know that. I'm still here. Um, but I, it just, they don't even get a, they don't even get like a confrontation. Like Adam driver no. never even sees Andrew Garfield. No, uh, he's never there, which is another weird moment where I'm like, man, he's yelling really loud. Like, does he not hear him? Are the waves too loud? It was just like a brief moment of the shot. Didn't give me any idea of perspective. It seemed like he was just on the top of the rocks and they were down on the beach. I didn't get a sense that they were so far apart that, when Andrew Garfield starts screaming that Adam Driver can't hear him, but I guess they were pretty far. <laughs> yeah, I, <clears throat> it's, and when, and when Liam Neeson's lecturing about how, you know, how much enlightenment he's received, personally, I find the fact that he is still doing so under the marching orders of the, uh, of the guy in charge and is implied that he is still very much a prisoner despite all of the fame and accolades and enlightenment he's received. It's like, yeah. am I really supposed to take that seriously? Like there, there's absolutely a case to be like, I mean, I don't have strong like feelings of the supremacy of one system of belief versus another at this point. But like the, but if you're, if all of your enlightenment is being held under threat of, you know, torture and death, like that's that, that robs the, 
Liam Neeson stuff for me of a lot of its potential compelling power, I guess. Yeah. You know what it seems to me too, and again, I, I, if I sound like I'm being harsh on Scorsese, I, I'm not because I dearly think he is one of the greatest directors ever. This seems like a guy who just was so taken with what he was doing. Like I felt like this needed a step back, take a little step back and go like, uh, and tweak this a little bit. Like, hey, it seems like Adam Driver's gone for a long time. Maybe we could tighten that up a little bit. Um, this feels well, there are other there are other adaptations of this movie too, which unfortunately I haven't seen. But none yeah, of them so are I've as long as this one. Yeah. Uh, it, it, again, it's it's just one of those things where um, this feels like a, this feels like the film of an older person that just is going to dial into this one thing. They're going to take their sweet time. Um, and I value that. And I, and I love the idea of this is the film that I want to make and you can accept it on its terms or not. Um, I just wish I accepted it more on its terms. I'm super glad I saw it. Um, but this is probably one I will almost most likely never see again. Do you, um, when, when you log this on letterboxd, I texted you to say that it had a, it sort of inspired uh, an idea for me. And as we sort of wrap up this conversation, how, how do you feel that this sits in conversation with something like the Irishman, which is also a very much latter day Scorsese movie, the third in a unofficial, like these are not official trilogies, but like this is the third time he's done a religious movie or a third time he's done a specifically, you know, gangster, uh, modern gangster type movie. Um, and I feel like when you're talking about uh, some of the some of the struggles with with silence, it uh, it sound almost sounds like we could have be having a similar conversation about the Irishman. I I think so. I think the Irishman suffers from a lot of the same things. Um, I would give it the same exact score. <laughs> uh, silence, the Irishman, and Kundun. Solid three and a half stars. Uh, visually fantastic, uh, overly long, and kind of hammers things home or doesn't hammer things home in a way that disconnects me. <laughs> yeah, to your point, like there's only so many times that I'm going to see someone grappling with some of that stuff um, before I'm just going to always turn back to uh, a Goodfellas or a Casino or a Last Temptation of Christ. That those, there are so many things I feel that are yet to kind of unfold for me in those films. That despite these being newer and in some cases even longer, I feel like after one watch I've got it. And the the onion is the onion is bare. Well, if there's. Uh any sort of overall summation to this whole episode of the two movies we talked about. Uh, it's a great way to transition into our recommendation segment, which is that uh, y'all should watch the last temptation of Christ. Yeah. Y'all, <laughs> y'all should it watch is, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I knew enough going into this, that uh, I should finally get around to watching it because it felt by that point I'd realized, yeah, you should probably know what this is so I can talk about these other movies that sort of exist seemingly in conversation with it. And again, there's, I think it's great that we didn't have this as the main uh, movie to talk about because like, this is the one that has the most, like people talk about this all the time, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of well-worn stuff on this, but like as a first time watching of this movie, uh, this is a completely controversial take. I know, but holy fucking shit, that movie's a masterpiece. Like, and, and the, my, my favorite part of the whole thing 
is the ending where uh where he's you know after he's had the vision and he and he go, and you cut back to him on the cross and he uh and he is you realize that he's never actually left this was just sort of a temptation that he the last the last temptation if you will uh and the film dissolves and i know that that's an accident I know, like, I read the story that that was an accident that some assistant or someone accidentally opened the canister and that's what happened. And he was so worried that that was going to be like, you know, ruining the the best take that they got or whatever. But Scorsese's decision to be like, no, we just make that the end of the movie. And that's the resurrection. And especially given the feverish nature of the movie, the fact that the film literally burns itself out at the end, I was like, oh, man. It's I don't care if it's an accident. This is like, you couldn't, ha- like, if you couldn't have planned for this, it is an absolute miracle uh, ending uh, for that in a way that everything that the movies we talked about struggle to do, this movie just does perfectly. And fuck you, uh, Harvey Keitel is good in this movie. Uh, yeah, like, and almost and almost effortlessly, because that's like the thing to point out about this, because I was complaining about, Especially with silence, how kind of on the nose Scorsese's themes are. Well, they are. You can't be more on the nose than Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ himself <laughs> wrangling, right, with with his role as the Messiah. But man, when you like when you film it like Scorsese does, when you have Peter Gabriel doing the the score, when you use color, when you have, <laughs> I'm surprised that that end is your favorite part and not the beginning where our first introduction to Harvey Keitel as Judas is when he beats the crap out of Jesus, lays him on the ground, and then run and kills like five people, all like basically with his balls hanging out. <laughs> it is it is so Harvey Keitel. There is not even an attempt to push aside like the street tough New York kind of Harvey Keitel that we know from like Mean Streets and so many other films. Um, but this movie takes those things and it just makes it, it makes it, it's a period piece. It is Jesus Christ and holy crap, Willem Dafoe is, I mean, everyone in this is great, but it is simultaneously historic and period specific and so modern at the same time in a way that's not anachronistic. Like it's not them using like, well, Hey, fuck you dude. And like, like, like using slang and talking about computers or like that, but it is, it is so thoroughly modern in its execution and in in its attack and its characterizations and its acting that it's a, yeah, it's a masterpiece. If you have not seen this movie, go see this movie because that's one you'll want to watch again and again. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the thing like, there, there's not a in, in my head a lot of the conversations they're having around especially towards the end where it's like well you're gonna have to betray me because this has to happen a lot of that is based around sort of like modern theological concepts as taken directly from the pages of you know scripture and to put those but to put those into the word into the minds and mouths of real people who are really lived in the whole fact that he's struggling almost to the point of insanity um or be like beyond insanity is like that makes perfect sense whereas something like oh i don't know like the passion of the christ they're like oh we 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 recorded the dialogue in the original languages uh that that attempt to be more like realistic and show these people it doesn't like what i like about last temptation of christ is it sort of says okay let's take this modern religious framework and stick it into the mind 
of a person who's like, okay, you've been told you're the Messiah. What do you do with that? Like, and, and, and it's that, that is very much a historical, but Defoe is so good as, and you're right. The beginning of the movie is absolutely bonkers. And then that allows when he settles into the more traditional Jesus right. stories and miracles that you know, for it to be completely under sort of the tension underneath that is he's like, we've seen him completely unhinged and now just having these like sort of like uplifting more traditional conversations you know that you know what's underneath there um in a way that is far more compelling um than the jesus film yeah after i watched both of these um films although one isn't listed in the book for obvious reasons. Uh, one of the books that I turned to was Scorsese by Roger Ebert, which um, kind of dissects um, via his original interviews, new interviews conducted with Scorsese at the time, and then reconsiderations of each of the films in his filmography. Um, it was really great to kind of dive into Ebert's thoughts because he had been a champion of Scorsese like almost before anybody else was in the movie film critic world. Um, so to go back and read the entries on Kundun and to go and read through Last Temptation of Christ, it's an excellent book um, and I highly recommend seeking it out. From a film perspective, I, I John, I had told you I, I've been really lax in watching films. Life is just kind of eating up a lot of time. So if I'm not working and doing family things, I'm typically like I'm watching a couple of TV shows when I can, trying to get a couple of books in. So movies uh, are few and far in between for me to take the time to really watch through, at least right now. Uh, but I did watch one film. And I watched that film because after years of cajoling me, you finally got me to actually listen to an episode of the Blank Check podcast. <laughs> uh, the most recent one, although by now I believe Slumdog Millionaire has come out, but I watched the one before that, uh, listened to the one before that on Danny Boyle's Sunshine and watched the movie Sunshine. Uh, which is, uh, most people probably, if you're film nerd, you know what Sunshine is because it performed abysmally at the box office, but everybody loves it and says it's one of their favorite Danny Boyle films. It is a science fiction kind of adventure slash weird horror film slash a bunch of other things about um, a group of scientists who are launched into outer space to put a bomb in the sun, which is slowly kind of dying, uh, keeping Earth in kind of uh, a new cold age. So uh, this super stacked team, Killian Murphy, Chris Evans, Michelle Yeoh, Rose Byrne, um, a couple other names, uh, Benedict Wong. Uh, I can't remember the name of the captain because um, it's, it's Captain Canada in my head, but yeah, uh, the I, actor's I think making me crazy. Canada, yeah. But you, as you see him, you're like, oh my God, that guy's in, the, in, in this movie too. Um, so watching it for the first time in a couple years, uh, I'm really struck by, similar to Silence, how like the first two thirds of the movie kind of are chef's kiss perfect. Uh, and then the, well, although Silence is certainly not that for me, so I apologize. What I'm trying to get to is how the end kind of falls apart. Um, I was surprised that I'm much more okay with the ending now. Um, I have some small kind of quibbles about how it turns into much more of a stalker horror film. 
I, I think you can take the basic tenet of like the third act reveal and present that in a better way. One of the things that I learned on the blank check episode, which apparently blank check is like 80 hours long each episode. So I enjoyed it. I don't know when I'll get to the next one, but they talk about how, um, in that whole third act, there was a lot of push and pull between the writer Alex Garland and Danny Boyle over, you know, like the, the the tone of the film overall. And Alex Garland admitted, he's like, look, I would have went for a much more kind of sedate, contemplative, meditative thing. But Danny knows how to make your blood rush. Danny knows how to evoke emotions. So ultimately, you know, the choices were his and 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 he was it was the right way to go. Um something along those lines. Uh, but watching it this time, I get what Garland was going for in the screenplay. And I would have loved to have taken like an alternate reality tour where Garland, if not directed the whole movie, directed the last third to see how he would have set that whole piece up to work. Um, but it still is quite a lovely film. I was surprised at how much I liked Chris Evans in it this time. Uh, he's ju- he's much more than just like the hothead because uh, it turns out he's always right. <laughs> uh, and he's, he constantly is sacrificing for the mission. Uh, I love that. I love the end, the ridiculous moment of him being so close to the sun that he has a moment where he can touch the sun before he burns away into, you know, ash. It makes no scientific sense, but from a filmic perspective, from a cinematic perspective, it makes all the sense, right? Like that is, you make that scene because of everything else that's going on in the film as true to science as they try to make that. You need that moment of whimsy to wrap up what everyone else was experiencing. Like everyone was having their own kind of weird dalliances and obsessions with the sun. So to do something that was so kind of crazy and dream logical at the end where Killian Murphy touches the sun before he gets obliterated, I think was a beautiful poetic moment. Yeah. I, I, yes, I also rewatched it in anticipation of the blank check episode and, uh, it, like you, I feel like the the drop in the last act of the film is the is is less pronounced than I remember it being. Right. <clears throat> I, I think like you, I'm like I, okay. I still am not entirely sold on the the ch- the change, but it's less jarring than I remember it. Um, and which is good because I think the first two thirds of this movie are essentially perfect. Um. <laughs> uh the like you talked about chris chris evans like he that like every single person in this movie is so like there's the there's the there's the there's the conflicts and tensions and everyone is like super on edge and it's like a mission to save the world and they're probably going to die so like emotions are running hot throughout the whole movie but in almost every character even the characters who do like the the, the only person who really has actually completely broken bad is pinbacker and i think that's why he probably is like that's why it sits a bit weird because chris evans like hates killian murphy but when when it comes to saving the mission there's not even a hesitation right it's obviously killian murphy has to be saved because he's the person who can complete the mission and there's no there's no sentimentality around it it's just no it's got to be you even when it's going to hurt himself yeah um 
And uh, I really love uh, like there's I don't think there's really a bad performance in this movie. I really like Cliff Curtis as the psychologist who's supposed to keep everyone in who's supposed to keep everyone in check and yet is completely just staring into the sun. Yeah, he's the biggest addict. And like when Kaneda is about to go out and he's and he gets on the mic, he's like, tell me what you see. (laughs) Uh, It was was so goddamn good. It's a great moment. It's a great moment. It's 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 amazing. Well, as always, John, I think this was another fun episode. Uh, glad to have joined you once again. <laughs> no, absolutely, Chris. It's been uh, it's good to uh, uh, connect back again on these uh, these movies, uh, both these specific two movies we talked about, but also just like wherever our sort of attentions bring us in in terms of movies. And uh, I, uh, yeah, it's always fun and good, and I uh, look forward to chatting with you next time. Sounds good. Take care, everyone. Bye.